Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 24th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Jackson State hosts NASA as they connect historically black colleges and universities with federal agencies and businesses. NASA has got a 1% goal of our total prime and subcontracting dollars to do business with HBCUs and MSIs. We're trying to make a concerted effort to use the road tour to make the connections that are needed to try and meet that goal. Healthcare professionals are working to raise awareness for Mississippians living with sickle cell disease. And in our book club segment, a conversation with best-selling author Mark Bowden about his book on the bloodiest battle of the Vietnam War. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. NASA is on a two-day mission in Mississippi to connect historically black colleges and universities with government and business contracts. The revenue stream can be a lifeline for HBCUs struggling with dwindling budgets. They're also working with minority-serving institutions, or MSIs. This year, NASA has a budget of $19 billion. Its goal is to award 1% of that, or $193 million, to HBCUs and MSIs. NASA's outreach mission involves a conference on the JSU campus where NASA representatives are learning more about what the target universities have to offer through their programs. The schools are finding out how to compete for contracts, such as research projects. NASA also invited other federal agencies like the U.S. Department of Energy, to the dialogue. Tabissa Kalisa is a program manager at NASA. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more about the event. We believe that schools such as Jackson State and a lot of our other HBCUs have a lot of the technology that we need to infuse into our missions for the next 20 to 30 years. We already know what our technology roadmap is, and we already know how we're going to try and get to Mars. But some of the technology and the infrastructure that's been developed at schools such as these can help us get there. So we're trying to make a concentrated effort to reach out to HBCUs and MSIs, uh, minority-serving institutions. They need the extra help because NASA does a lot of business with institutions. We produce a report every year, and we list the top 100 institutions we do business with. 
you can see the significant disparity in a lot of the Ivy League schools that do business with the agency and the HBCUs and MIs that do business with the agency. So we want to make sure we can increase that number of schools that do business. They need to know what our opportunities are. We need to try and bring the opportunities to them. So at this event, we managed to have a number of our NASA personnel here. We had our Space Technology Mission Directorate. We had our Center Technology Transition Leads, and those are the central technical people who understand the technical aspects that a university such as Jackson State has, and they can understand who the people Jackson State needs to be in touch with so that they can make that connection and hopefully develop that contract and be able to get an additional revenue stream So historically, HBCUs have been left out of the loop? Historically, they do participate, but at a very significantly lower level. Why? Because at times they just don't know who you're supposed to be talking to. At times the school can think, well, I don't know if NASA would be interested in what we have, but we actually are interested. We need help to get us to the next level. And at times we actually look to our institutions and academia to help us meet or understand some of the problems that we have, that they can help us provide solutions. And we know that academia has always historically been able to do that. For us to be the number one space agency in the world, we rely on a lot of our academia, our scientists, our professors, our faculty for that institutional knowledge. And They are so flexible because they have the incubators at the schools. So you have students who have the vision, and they understand what we're looking for or what we might be looking at that we haven't even thought about it yet. And when we have this dialogue that we can actually understand, you know what, that's maybe something we need to infuse in our solicitations when we go out. Um, So we're trying to make more headway. We have a good start. Jackson State has been a wonderful host to us. And the fact that we've also had some of our other federal partners, like the Department of Energy, like the General Services Administration, be a part of this has really made a significant difference. We have our prime contractors here. We have Lockheed Martin that is currently working on the Orion uh, capsule, which is going to be part of the space launch system, which is the largest rocket that's being built and it will be go to Mars and beyond. They currently have over 800 small businesses doing work on that contract. And they also have some HBCUs doing work on that contract. So what they're here to do is to find other HBCUs and see what the technology schools like Jackson State has, that they might be able to get some contracts with them. It's a wonderful opportunity, and our prime contractors have embraced this. That's why they're here. That's why they're committed to being a part of the matchmaking, because we want to hear what Grambling has to offer. We want to hear what Jackson State has to offer. We heard from Xavier, and automatically some of the research that's being done there is something that Lockheed Martin is looking at, but they wouldn't have made that connection if it wasn't for this road tour. So we're really appreciative to Jackson State for providing us a wonderful platform. Thank you so much for speaking with us. for your time. Cheers. Tavis Akalisa of NASA. Wilbur Walters is Dean of JSU's College of Science, Engineering, and Technology. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier about the school's goals. Well, we want to expand the role of HBCUs in contracting, but not just in contracting for funding, but in contracting as it relates to uh, uh, providing for national security for all the, the needs of our nation. Is Jackson State doing a lot of research in those areas? Uh, We are doing research in those areas. A lot of it is um, federal funding in terms of grants. But contract work, there's a little more to desire. And uh, we hope that uh, 
event like this will allow us to expand in those areas in terms of utilizing the capabilities that we have on campus. What are you trying to plug into? We're looking into the, the areas of IT, materials, research, areas that we are uh, have been historically strong in, uh, environmental science, but at the same time, we know that we're expanding into all different types of areas of uh, big data. And so we're not only looking at the capabilities that we have now, but we're also looking towards the future. And in terms of what you've been able to learn here today, how can you move that needle forward? You start to see the challenges in terms of uh, working with uh, corporate contracts. And once we understand as a, as a family between the corporate America academia and government, the challenges that we have in all of our spaces, it makes you feel more comfortable coming to the table uh, and working together. And so does that mean coming up with a team approach to this when you want to go after a contract? That's it. I mean, it cannot be a silo. From the university side, you have to have buy-in across the campus, from your business entities to your research office to your upper administration to your faculty uh, and to the students, everybody understanding what it means to work on, on certain contracts. And also from the other side, you have to build that trust so that you can have the buy-in from not only the persons, the, the technical people you may be dealing with, but you have to from, from their senior administration as well, leadership and management team. The more institutions that can sit down with corporate partners, I mean, our nation would be much better behind it because we have so much talent on our campuses that can really change the world. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Twelve universities attended the sessions, including Grambling State in Louisiana and Philander Smith College in Arkansas. Coming up, healthcare professionals are raising awareness for sickle cell disease and blood donations. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In Mississippi, there is an ongoing need for blood donations, especially for the nearly 4,000 Mississippians living with sickle cell disease. That's according to Mississippi Sickle Cell Foundation. Sickle cell is the most common inherited blood disease in the United States. The sickle or crescent-shaped blood cells can disrupt blood flow and cause immense pain. The Centers for Disease Control and prevention says one in every 365 African Americans has the disease. Although the disease disproportionately affects this group, people of other races and ethnic backgrounds are also susceptible. David Allen is president and CEO of Mississippi Blood Services. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware it's a challenge to meet the demand for blood for all types of patient needs. The blood centers in uh, blood collections in Mississippi is a constant challenge, quite honestly. Less than 4% of the population provides all the blood that's needed. And so it is a challenge to try to make sure that we can meet the demand for blood by patients in hospitals across the state. You know, we never know from day to day how many accident victims are going to show up at various hospitals, how many surgery patients are going to be needed, how many surgeries that might go bad, how many cancer patients are identified that need platelet treatment, 
So it's a it's a constant challenge, and it's one that you really can't sit back and rest and say, oh, okay, everything is in, in good shape. Why do you think only 4% of the population are donating blood? We spend a great deal of time trying to educate people. We, you know, do a good bit of advertising. Uh, We have marketing reps that go around the state and talk to various organizations. And quite honestly, you know, I think a lot of people really, they may hear the message, but really don't think about it. And how a lot of our donors got started is when they themselves or they had a family member or a friend that needed blood, and they really never thought about donating blood before. And I think too many people just assume that blood is always going to be there. Well, if blood donors don't provide the blood, it's not going to be there when it's needed. And uh, Mississippi is number one in the entire nation for giving of their financial resources. So Mississippians are great at pulling out their wallet and contributing, but blood donors are a lot rarer here than other parts of the country, and it's just a, it's just a constant challenge. For someone who may have a disease like sickle cell, why is it important that they constantly have access to an adequate blood supply? Sickle cell disease is the most common inherited blood disorder in the United States. And today, the primary treatment for sickle cell disease are blood transfusions. So that's another reason why it's absolutely critical that we have blood on the shelves because that is the number one treatment, I should say, for sickle cell disease. Um, A patient with sickle cell can receive blood from anyone, but we have found that we have a greater chance of getting the correct match for a sickle cell patient uh, within the African-American community. So that's why we work so hard to get the African-American community to participate. And Mississippi is number one in the country in the percent of African-American donors who donate. We're around 30% of our total collections come from African-Americans, and that is much greater than any other blood center across the country. David Allen is president and CEO of Mississippi Blood Services. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Tyra Heckman of Jackson is a sickle cell patient. She's also a nurse at the University of Mississippi Medical Center Sickle Cell Day Clinic. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware pain medicine can be a daily solution for people battling the disease. Sickle cell is a hereditary blood disease. When you're born... You usually start having pain crisis early. Uh, now I'm 28 years old, but growing up, I say I think that was my second home on the children's side. I was there like every two weeks out of every month almost, um, just from trying to learn my body. And what happens is with sickle cell, the blood cells, instead of being round and red, they're sickle-shaped. Now, not all our blood cells are sickle-shaped, just some of them. So when the sickle 
blood cells get stuck in the area. Like, let's say the, all the blood cells are passing through the elbow, and all of a sudden the sickle cells get stuck in the elbow area. That causes the patient to have pain in that area. It's excruciating pain. There's nothing really to do but take pain medication and pray that it works. And sometimes it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, you have to come to the hospital. You just have to get fluids and IV medicine just to help try to get the blood flow going again. On the pain medicine, is just a decrease on how much pain the patient experiences. So it's a lifetime of pain medicine. These patients are on these for their entire life, just trying to live a normal lifestyle with limited pain. How often do you need blood transfusion? Uh, the need for blood is great. Even right now, I'm an adult, and I don't get sick maybe once or twice out of the year. But that doesn't include my blood transfusions. I don't get monthly blood transfusions, but even with me hydrating and doing things properly as I'm supposed to, sometimes I just might get exhausted and I feel extreme fatigue, extreme exhaustion. Then I usually inform my physician and we check my blood levels. And usually when I feel like that, they are low. So I might get a blood transfusion like maybe every three to four months. Just because I'm so active, I'm really busy. Um, I work, I go to school, I go to church, I have a family. Um, I'm just really active. And so sometimes my blood counts might drop low and I might not be in pain, but I do need blood. So that's why it's important for those who can to donate. What should all Mississippians know about sickle cell disease and what could be done to help these patients? I think that there's a negative stereotype out with the public for sickle cell patients. I think they're looked at as drug seekers. And what Mississippians should know is that sickle cell patients are just normal people who are trying to live their life to the fullest, but they might have many more setbacks than normal people. You know, we never can predict how we're going to be feeling. So it does not just affect African-Americans. There are also people of different descent. So I think that people should take it a little easier on them and just know that they're trying to do the best that they can for their lifestyle and their body. Tyra Hickman, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. The Mississippi Foundation for Sickle Cell will host its annual gala in Jackson tomorrow to boost awareness and support. Coming up, hear from the author of Hue's 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi edition. Mark Bowden, the author of the best-selling Black Hawk Down, applies his background in journalism with storytelling to bring readers a historic account of the 1968 battle in the Vietnamese city of Hue. His new narrative is entitled Hue 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. Using first-person accounts from American servicemen and Vietnamese soldiers, guerrillas, and civilians, Bowden reports on the biggest and bloodiest battle of the war. He says he relies 
relied on the help of two translator researchers and a Vietnamese colleague at the University of Delaware, where he is writer-in-residence. In today's book club segment, Bowden tells us more about his new book. It is the centerpiece of the Tet Offensive, which was, uh, I think, probably the pivotal moment in the war. It certainly was the moment when I think the anti-war movement really picked up steam. Several weeks after the Battle of Hue, President Johnson decided not to seek re-election. And it was also the largest and bloodiest single battle in the war in Vietnam. You are a journalist by trade. Does that affect the way you write a book like this? Absolutely. As a journalist, I'm first and foremost a storyteller. You know, it happens, my subject in this case is a piece of history, so I sort of vaguely qualify as an historian. But my methods are those primarily of a journalist, and that is that I build my stories on the basis of interviews. In this case, a hundred of them or more with um, American veterans and also Vietnamese veterans. And I build my stories from the ground up. I'm actually more interested in recreating the experience for the reader than I am in delivering historical treaties. One of the things that I came away with was a tremendous appreciation for the heroism and even the idealism of many of the young Americans who went and fought in Vietnam. But I was also struck by how deliberately the civilian and military authorities misled the American people and even how their misconceptions about what was actually happening in Vietnam led to the deaths of many Americans and also many Vietnamese. How long did it last? It was a month-long battle, and it was brutal. Uh, it was essentially the communist forces took the city in a matter of hours, and it took nearly the entire month of February for the United States Marines and the United States Army to win the city back. Was this most significant as a military event or a political event or both? It was both, and I think when you talk about a war like the war in Vietnam, it's important to understand what kind of war it was. And frankly, I think a lot of military folks understandably think in strictly military terms. That was one of the problems, I think, with the way that we fought the war in Vietnam. But it turns out that even though American and South Vietnamese forces eventually drove the communist forces from Hue, the fact that the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong were able to strike such a blow and, and to take the third largest city in South Vietnam and hold it for a month sent a message both to the South Vietnamese people and to the American people that this was not the easy war that they had been sold by their leaders. Were you able to talk to people about their experience from all sides? You mentioned you talked to Vietnamese and Americans who were directly involved in that battle. Yes, and I think over a period of years and talking to so many people and reading a lot about it and then searching the archives, one of the things that struck me was the disconnect between what I know to have been going on. For instance, I know that there were 10,000 North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops in the city. They took the city. And yet for days and even weeks after the city was taken, General Westmoreland was cabling the White House and his commanders, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that the city had not fallen, that there were no more than about 500 enemy troops in the city. And as a consequence of that, he was sending small units of American soldiers 
up against a far superior, well-entrenched enemy force. And those orders got a lot of Americans killed. We hear stories all the time that when servicemen returned, they were spat upon, they were yelled at. I'm wondering what perceptions are from the people who were involved in this battle 50 years later. You know, I asked everyone who I interviewed, and it was a lot of people, to tell me what they think about it now. And honestly, Karen, the number of different responses I got is uh, equal to the number of people I talked to. In general, the American soldiers and Marines who fought in Vietnam are proud of having served their country. Most feel betrayed on some level. Some feel betrayed by their own commanders. Some feel betrayed by the political leaders. Some feel betrayed by their countrymen. And so it has been a difficult experience and a difficult thing for American vets to live through. Many of them went with a tremendous amount of idealism and patriotism to serve their country. These are, in most cases, young men who are 18 or 19 years old. They have nothing to do with how they're used or why they're sent to Vietnam or anything else. They're just doing their service to their country. And to realize in retrospect that they had been misled and that the American public was not respectful of the sacrifices that they made was a very difficult and painful experience. The Vietnamese, on the other hand, won the war, and uh, for the most part, they're extremely proud of their service and what they accomplished. Huey, 1968, a turning point of the American war in Vietnam. We've been speaking with its author, Mark Bowden. Thank you so much, Mark. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for listening today. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here.